Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisodu Hoko, and Msibudi Makura. Top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. Voting is underway in Burundi's presidential election and African Union to send human rights observers to Burundi. In economics, BRICS Development Bank starts operation in Shanghai and in sports news, FIFA to elect its new president next year. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. Polling stations in Burundi's controversial presidential elections have opened with President Pierre Kurunziza widely expected to win a third consecutive term. More than three and a half million Burundis are eligible to vote in the polls which the opposition and civil society groups are boycotting, claiming they will not be free and fair. Gunshots and explosions were heard overnight before the official poll opening. The trial of former Chadian President Hisan Habre continues after a chaotic start. Habre was removed from the courtroom amidst protests by his supporters. The trial for crimes against humanity began without him. Habre is accused of being responsible for the torture and killing of thousands of people during his 1982-1990 rule in a Central African country. The case is being tried in the Extraordinary African Chambers, a unique body set up by the African Union. Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari has met with U.S. President Barack Obama and other senior U.S. administration officials. The fight against Boko Haram and tackling corruption were top on the agenda when the two leaders met at the White House. Kate Fisher reports from Washington. President Buhari came here seeking assistance on fighting extremism and corruption. President Obama praised this clear agenda 
and said he looked forward to seeing how the U.S. could partner Nigeria on both those counts. This is an important week for American-African relations. President Buhari will spend four days in the U.S. capital. Then on Thursday, President Obama flies to Kenya and then on to Ethiopia and what's likely to be his final visit to the continent as president. More than 20 people have been killed in an attack by suspected Boko Haram militants in northern Cameroon. Several children were among the victims who were killed on Sunday night after over 80 militants attacked the village of Kamona, located near Lake Chad. Residents in the village had reportedly asked for more protection last week. Boko Haram's violence has spilled over into Nigeria's neighboring countries. Soldiers from Nigeria, Chad, Cameroon and Niger have been battling the terrorists in recent months. Southern African ministers are meeting in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, to discuss how to finance the African Union military exercise Amani Africa 2. The Amani Africa 2 exercise is one of the key items on the agenda of the ministerial meeting of the Politics, Defence and Security Organ of the Southern African Development Community. The African standby force has been on the AU's drawing board for over a decade but is not yet ready to deploy. The ministers are also assessing progress made by their respective states in implementing measures agreed to at the SADC summit earlier this month to address the continuing political and security crisis in Lesotho. South Africa should consider putting people on antiretroviral treatment immediately after testing positive for HIV. This is a recommendation made to the government following results of an international HIV-AIDS clinical study to be presented at the International AIDS Society Conference in Vancouver, Canada today. The results of the study show that antiretroviral therapy provides lasting protection against the sexual transmission of the virus from infected men and women to the HIV uninfected sexual partners. Professor Ian San from Wits University says the country has to move towards putting HIV positive people on treatment immediately after testing positive, regardless of their viral load and C4 count. There were actually eight transmissions that occurred in discordant couples where the one partner was taking treatment, and these occurred during the very early phase of the treatment or where the viral load was not undetectable. So the recommendation is for people who are taking treatment um, that the, the, they take adhere well to the treatment and only then will the benefits be measured in their negative partners. But then they can protect their partners from getting HIV. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Voting is underway in Burundi's presidential election amid unrest over incumbent President Pierre Nkurunziza's bid for a third term in office. Fears have been rife that the polls may trigger violence. A grenade exploded in Bujumbura, the capital's central business district, yesterday. For an update from Burundi's capital, Bujumbura, we earlier spoke to our correspondent there, Bernard Bankukira. During the night, uh, we heard instant gunshots and grenade explosions 
during the whole night. We, but we haven't yet known anything about uh, uh, these um, these gunshots. Officers haven't said anything about it. But um, uh, as I'm coming from one of the polling stations in Bura, uh the polls have not yet started uh, because I witnessed that uh, the polling staff arranging things by clearing rooms and arranging ballot boxes and everything. So uh, as it was expected that the voting exercise starts at 6, uh, something else that I would like to highlight is that security has been boosted. Uh, we need many security officers like uh, the military and the police officers deployed there in big numbers and this is uh, reported across the whole capital of Bujumbura and um, we also noticed that the polling stations have been combined that was during the parliamentary and communal elections of June 29th and uh, at the polling stations not so many voters except the polling staff members and uh, the security officers in big numbers. The voters are yet to report. Now, Bernard, the grenade explosion in, in last night. Um, you, as you said, you, as you mentioned, you don't have much detail of exactly what happened. But could this be a, a way of uh, stopping people from going to vote or scaring people from not voting, as the opposition has called for uh, people to boycott elections and? President Gruzinza's party is calling for people to vote. The Electoral Commission has told people that uh, they must come out in numbers and, and, and vote in the election. What is the situation there? I think uh, we, we, it's difficult to confirm whether the gunshots were aiming at threatening people to go to vote. But um, uh, we, uh, of course, there are some opposition leaders who have withdrawn from the exercise. But uh, the, the, the candidates who withdrew, who pulled out, are less influential considering, for example, the ruling party and the opposition coalition which came second in the parliamentary elections because Agatha Ndwata, for example, hasn't withdrawn his candidate and uh, he hasn't officially uh, called his members not to vote. Uh, he said that uh, he received information from the countryside that uh, some of his members got threatened and asked to if possible, if they should go to vote, uh, he told them that whoever will feel that his security is endangered, he would go to vote and vote accordingly. So it's difficult to confirm whether the gunshots are aiming to threaten people. Maybe we, should, we can wait until the coming hours to see how the situation will be. Now, Bernard, with regards to the security situation on the ground, especially after the, the explosions last night, has security been beefed up? Is the more, are there more security personnel on the ground at po- different polling stations, or is it just uh, business as usual? No, 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 no. We, I have said that we have uh, the security situation has been very boosted comparing, for example, to the June 29th. I mean, in Bujumbura, because maybe it's because of the last night's come short, we have uh, very big numbers of police officers and the military officers who are really on guard as if uh, anything had happened. So the security has been really busted. Now, Bernard, where are you right now? What is happening? Are you at a polling station? What is happening there with regards to the voting process? Yes, actually, I am in the capital of Bujumbura. A few minutes ago, like something like 10 minutes ago, I was uh, at a polling station there. I said that it wasn't 
it was yet to start. The Independent National Electoral Commission told us uh, everything was to be arranged yesterday evening, but uh, I managed to admit that uh, nothing was ready by 7 o'clock, as the exercise was expected to start at 6. That was our reporter in Burundi, Bernard Bankukira, joining us on the line from the capital, Bujumbura. The African Union says it will still send the human rights and military observers to Burundi despite delays. The mission was approved by the African Union summit held last month in Johannesburg as part of a way of assessing the situation in Burundi. Coletta Wanjohi has more. In April 2015, when President Pierre Nkurunzinza of Burundi expressed his bid to run for the third term of presidency, protests began in the capital city, Bujumbura. Some sections of the public plus members of opposition parties demonstrated against his intention, saying that he had already finished his two terms since 2005 when he got into power. However, Pierre Nkurunziza insists that the 2005 to 2010 period was an appointment by parliament and not elections by the people, hence he has only served one term. Jacob Eno, the spokesperson of the chairperson of the African Union Commission, says that Burundi government has agreed that a team of human rights and military experts be deployed to Burundi after the skirmishes that erupted. We are working closely with the Burundian government to have um, human rights and military observers deployed as per decisions that have been taken by the Peace and Security Council on the 13th of, uh, of June on the margins of the uh, African Union summit in South Africa. The human rights observers are responsible for monitoring the human rights situation on the ground and reporting possible violations of human rights and international humanitarian law. As to the military experts, they are responsible for verifying in collaboration with the government and other stakeholders the disarmament of militias and other armed groups. However, one month after it was officially commissioned, the team is yet to arrive in Burundi. At first, the Burundi government said that it could be deployed after the initially planned presidential elections of 15th July. However, after the polls were postponed to July 21st, the Burundi government now says that the team members must obtain visas for entry into Burundi, despite the fact that some of them carry African Union diplomatic passports and may not need visas. Jacob Eno, the spokesperson of the chairperson of the African Union Commission, says that despite this seemingly intentional delay, African Union is determined to send this team to Burundi at whatever time. Well, they are not going particularly for the presidential elections. They're going, given the situation that we've known since the president uh, of Burundi announced his intention to run for another term, term of office, and the escalation of violence and the situation of human rights. So these uh, observers would have been on the ground by now, basically to observe the situations and to make the necessary reports. The situation hasn't improved, and so definitely once we are able to get those observers on the ground as soon as possible. The African Union Peace and Security Council says that the AU Commission will initiate the required formalities of obtaining visas for the team as per the requirement of the Burundi government and will commence the deployment as soon as the visas have been issued. Call it for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa.
In other news, opposition parties in Botswana say efforts are at an advanced stage to try and strengthen opposition politics prior to the 2019 elections. Opposition parties won a record number of seats in the Botswana parliament in last year's general election, the first since the 1966 election. This landlocked country has been run by Seserete Khama's Botswana Democratic Party since 1966 when that country attained its independence from Britain. However, lack of funding is reported to be a stumbling block in the path of the opposition's growth. Itumelen Khajane has more. The opposition parties in Botswana smoked a peace pipe prior to last year's general elections. This resulted in the formation of the umbrella for democratic change. In its first election, the coalition won 22 seats in the 57-seat parliament. The leader of the UDC, Dumaboko, says parties which are members of the coalition held their conferences this weekend with an aim of introspecting and drafting better plans on how to strengthen the coalition. Efforts are underway. We have intensified those efforts. We have received new members coming both into the Botswana National Front and into the UDC in particular. We've also, in fact, received members coming into the other cooperating parties of the Umbrella for Democratic Change. We are confident that these efforts are bearing fruit and that the message that we have been sending out to the nation is being well received. Boko says the coalition has started to be well understood by the Botswana. South African parties have pledged their support to Botswana National Front, whose leader, Duma Boko, is the leader of the coalition. ANC National Executive Committee member, Pinkimuloi. They have been our allies, they have been our friends, and it can't be that all of a sudden when we have attained our own freedom in South Africa, we have to abandon our allies. And we're just here to come and give that support and, and to, for the, to, to actually convey the message that we, we, we support what they are doing. We wish them well in their future endeavors uh, to make sure that the people of Botswana uh, get a better life for all. The South African Communist Party's treasurer in Northwest, Washington Ntonzini, says these are some of the issues political parties in Botswana have to fight for. We can't keep quiet. What the people of Botswana, they are still in the poverty. We have seen as we drive through the still poverty, unemployment, inequality. So I'm saying the PNF are in the right uh, road to, to, to take this uh, move forward. However, UDC leader Dumaboko says lack of political party funding in Botswana weakened political parties and as a result become a threat to democracy. Political party funding will enable us to know how much goes to each political party so that when any party exceeds what it has been allocated, then we can see. Unemployment is estimated to be around 20% among Botswana's just over 2 million citizens. Some parts of the country are also reported to be poverty-stricken. That report by Itumile Khajane. Newly elected Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari is in Washington to meet President Barack Obama and other senior U.S. administration officials. The fight against Boko Haram and tackling corruption were top of the agenda when the two leaders met at the White House yesterday. Kate Fisher reports from Washington. Less than eight weeks after taking office, Nigeria's President Buhari is in the Oval Office meeting U.S. President Obama. The White House says the speed of the meeting shows how importantly it views relations with one of Africa's largest economies. 
Barack Obama was quick to praise Nigeria's recent elections. And Mr. Buhari returned the compliment, thanking the U.S. for its insistence on transparent elections. President Buhari came here seeking assistance on fighting extremism and corruption. President Obama praised his clear agenda and said he looked forward to seeing how the United States could help on both those counts so that Nigeria could be seen as an outstanding role model for developing countries across the world. Nigerians living in the U.S. capital, like Keodi Adinya, believe their new president will be able to do that and turn the country around. What is um, someone that has the interests of Nigeria and he's been striving to come back to make a lot of changes and I so much believe in him that with coming of Buhari, a lot of things is going to change and Boko Haram is going to be a thing of a story. And that problem must take precedence if Buhari is to succeed. According to Dr. Peter Pham, the director of the Atlantic Council's Africa Centre. The continued violence and in fact increasing virulence of attacks by Boko Haram, not just in Nigeria, but also just in recent days in Chad and Niger, makes it a first order priority to deal with this, what is now a regional terrorist threat. This is an important week for American-African relations. President Buhari will spend four days in the U.S. capital. Then on Thursday, President Obama flies to Kenya and then on to Ethiopia. And what's likely to be his final visit to the continent as president. Kate Fisher, Washington. It's 8.21 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Cuba's foreign minister has told his U.S. counterpart that despite profound differences that remain between the two countries, they still cooperate and coexist in a civilized way. Bruno Rodriguez was speaking at a joint press briefing with John Kerry at the State Department during a visit to the United States Capitol to reopen the Cuban embassy after 54 years. The meeting between the country's top diplomats followed the historic upgrading of the Cuban interest section in Washington into a fully-fledged embassy earlier in the day. Show and Bryce Peace reports. A historic moment as dignitaries and curious onlookers watched the Cuban flag hoisted after a decades-long absence here. Later, the two foreign ministers emerged to confirm much work lies ahead in this newfound relationship, as Secretary of State John Kerry confirmed. It does reflect the reality that the Cold War ended long ago and that the interests of both countries are better served by engagement than by estrangement and that we have begun a process of full normalization that is sure to take time but will also benefit the people in both Cuba and the United States. This shared resolve to look ahead is what drove our conversation today and what has brought us to this moment. His counterpart, Bruno Rodriguez, welcomed the new approach from the U.S. administration but acknowledged its limits. We have emphasized that, in the meantime, the President of the United States can continue using his executive powers to pay a significant contribution to the dismantling of the blockade, not to pursue changes in Cuba, something that falls under our exclusive sovereignty 
but to attend to the interests of U.S. citizens. I emphasize that the totally lifting of the blockade, the return of the legally occupied territory of Guantanamo, as well as the full respect for the Cuban sovereignty and the compensation to our people for human and economic damages are crucial to be able to move towards the normalization of relations. And while almost two-thirds of Americans want the embargo lifted, we found different views on the streets. Skipper Bailey at Pastors for Peace was out protesting for closer ties with the Cuban people. It's a message to the Republican Party and to the, to the ruling class that the American people, particularly people of African descent, want to be friends. We're friends with Vietnam, we're friends with China. Come, come, we can't be friends with a country 90 miles away that has so many ties like we have. Skipper wasn't done. There's 21 million Afro people of African descent between Jamaica, Haiti, and Cuba. I've been to all of them, worked, volunteered. Cuba is the healthiest place. No problem with drugs. Kids get a chance to go to school for free. Health care. Do you have that in Chicago? Do you have that in New York? Do you have that in California? No. Black people here are suffering. Black people politically, spiritually, are much healthier in Cuba. Marlena didn't want to give her full name, but wanted a meaningful engagement that went beyond business interests in Cuba. Cuba has not had free elections since 1948. Uh, what the dictator Batista started, the Castro regime continued. And we're here to say enough. You know, now is the time uh, for the U.S. and Cuba to come together um, and for the Cuban government to open itself to its own people and to negotiate with Cuban civil society. Taig Berry expressed gratitude for the recalibration in the relationship. I'm so grateful to Raul Castro and Barack Obama for making this opening possible. I want them to follow up with ending the travel restrictions. The only country in the world as an American I'm not allowed to travel to is uh, Cuba. It's ridiculous. And while full normalization remains a long way off, the country's embassies at least are now open for business and bring with that a number of diplomatic tools for broader engagement between these Cold War foes of old. I'm Sherwin Bricepees in Washington. It's 8.25 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Nuclear technologies are being adapted by the UN to diagnose animal and bird diseases in hours rather than the days which conventional methods typically take. Highly contagious infections can travel easily across borders and can lead to the death of livestock. The International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, and the Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, are working on ways to improve diagnostic capacity of countries to prevent the spread of of diseases. The techniques are being used in the efforts to prevent outbreaks like in West Africa and Peste des Petits Ruminants, or PPR, in the Middle East, Asia, and Africa. Steve Thatchett reports from Vienna. The international trade of livestock and livestock products, animal movement, climate change and other factors has contributed to the spread of diseases in animals around the world. The transboundary nature of the diseases means that no one country is immune to a disease. Charles Eulage Lamier is a technical officer from the IAEA. When we're talking about the transboundary animal diseases, it means these diseases are not stopping at one country. They will cross border and go to other countries. 
Therefore, when you're thinking about any strategy to control or reduce the impact of these diseases, it is good to have all the countries that are potentially affected or at risk to come together and talk and build common strategies. It is important to protect animals from these diseases because their welfare protects the economy of a country. Kabaje Mohabo is the principal veterinary officer from the Botswana National Veterinary Laboratory. We actually export about 80% of the beef that we produce, so it's very important that we do keep the diseases uh, at bay. We control the diseases so that we can facilitate trade and also assist in increasing the agricultural production, especially in the livestock sector and also in the poultry. The IAEA, in collaboration with African countries, is building a network of dedicated animal health laboratories known as VetLab. These labs share information and expertise between countries. Charles Lamian. There was a highly pathogenic avian influenza outbreak recently in Burkina Faso. This laboratory has exchanged experience in managing 2015 outbreak of avian influenza with other laboratory of a network, which was really a very interesting and useful exercise for all other laboratory from countries which are not yet infected by the disease. The IAEA and FAO is also training experts and veterinarians on the various nuclear techniques and tools that could help diagnose diseases rapidly. A training course was held in the IAEA laboratory on the early detection of animal and zoonotic diseases after a flood in the Asian region. Ivancho Nalatoski is the technical officer from the Animal Production and Health section of the IAEA. So we have picked up the most risky diseases which may occur after a flood. So in this training course particularly we included the leptospira, we included vector-borne diseases and we included uh, the using of geographical information tools in disease management and disease monitoring. The IAEA and FAO has adapted and validated a nuclear-derived molecular diagnostic technology to detect diseases like Ebola virus disease, foot and mouth diseases, and African swine fever. This is Steve Thatchett reporting from the IAA headquarters in Vienna, Austria. Let's go back in time to today in 1967, Nobel Peace Prize winner and former president of South Africa's African National Congress, Chief Albert Lutuli, died after he was struck by a train on a railway bridge close to the home that he had been confined to by the apartheid regime in Khrutville near Stanga in KwaZulu-Natal province. And that was today in history in 1967. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, revetua. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rises. Le soleil élevé. What's in the happen Africa? Africa, Dumelang Sanbonan. Africa, Mulishani, Pulibanj. Africa, Ayanyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. We, we are, are one people. people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.31 and our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
A very good morning to you. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon calls on the Burundian government to strive for a peaceful and secure atmosphere in presidential. In today's presidential election, SADC ministers of security and defense discuss how to finance the African Union military exercise Amani Africa II. And South Africa advised to consider putting HIV-positive people on antiretroviral treatment immediately after testing positive for HIV. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. Over the past year, nearly 90,000 people, mostly Rohingya people from Myanmar and citizens from Bangladesh, have risked their lives crossing the Bay of Bengal and the An- Andaman Sea. The Association of the South A- Southeast Asian Nations, Asian, this month convened a ministerial meeting on what's known as irregular migration. Among its recommendations was the establishment of a task force and trust fund to assist people rescued at sea. Diane Penn asked Vivian Tan, spokesperson with the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR in Bangkok, Thailand, how irregular migration affects the region. When people talk about tackling irregular migration in this region, we tend to focus more on law enforcement and cracking down on smuggling rings and prosecuting smugglers and all that. That's very important, but there's a tendency to sometimes forget about the victims, the people who are caught up in all this. Um, These people have been through terrible journeys. You know, they've spent weeks, even months on overcrowded boats. They've been abused, exploited, and then often... You know, they're taken to smugglers' camps on land where they're further exploited. We recently saw the emergence of some what they call mass graves in Malaysia and Thailand, and that's just a symptom of, of what's going on. So and these people have been through just atrocious, terrible journeys. So we have to remember that, you know, in addition to prosecuting the people to exploit them, we need to care for the victims to make sure that they get assistance, they get protection, and that eventually there is a solution for them. And how does this illegal migration play out in the region? What impact does it have? Well, when it comes to the boat movements in the Bay of Bengal and the Andaman Sea, really we're seeing a mix of refugees and migrants. It's not fully one or the other. It's a mix. It tends to be uh, Rohingya leaving Myanmar as well as Bangladeshi nationals leaving Bangladesh. In May, for example, more than 4,000 have landed. So it's, again, just we're seeing a, a fraction of the picture, and this is actually a long-standing problem. It's been going on for years. It's affected the region very much, and it's encouraging to see that countries in the region are, are now coming together to try and tackle it together. And now these five international officials from the UN and from the International Organization for Migration, they want to see further action. What exactly are they hoping to see? Well, Basically, a few of the agencies have shared a 10-point action plan that, you know, proposes certain actions that these governments can take to address short-term and long-term issues related to these boat movements. Again, we are focusing not just on law enforcement, but also making sure that um, it's a protection-sensitive approach, meaning that, you know, we put the victims at the center of all this. We make sure, first of all, that 
countries agree to, to launch search and rescue when there are reports of boats that could be stranded out there, that there is a clear place for them to disembark because, as we saw in May, there was a period when countries were sort of, you know, refusing to let people land. Um, so that needs to be clear. Whose responsibility is it? What's important is that people be allowed to land and receive assistance on land. And further on, I mean, UNHCR and other agencies are ready to help these host countries to, to screen the groups because, as I mentioned before, they are a mix of refugees and migrants. Many of the migrants from Bangladesh um, do choose to go home, and so that is a rather easy solution for them. Their government gets involved and facilitates their return to Bangladesh. But for the Rohingya, it's more difficult because of the situation in Rakhine State. They can't go home for the moment. And that's where um, we are advocating with these host governments that they should be allowed to stay temporarily. They should be allowed to have access to basic services. And in order not to be a burden on the host community, they should be allowed to work legally and sustain themselves. In the long run, of course, we have to look at uh, the, the root causes, what's driving these people to leave Myanmar and Bangladesh. Um, and hopefully by addressing those root causes over time, eventually we can create conditions that allow people like the Rohingya to return home. That was Vivian Tan, spokesperson for the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, in Bangkok, speaking to UN Radio's Diane Pin. It's 8.36 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Four countries in the East African region have formed an information and communications technology alliance in a bid to fast-track the implementation of regional integration process. The ICT managers from Rwanda, Uganda, Kenya and South Sudan under the Northern Corridor Infrastructure Projects met in Kigali, Rwanda over the weekend and agreed on working together to spearhead regional development. Silvanas Karamera reports. The alliance, which is known as the Northern Corridor Technology Alliance, is the first of its kind in the region. It is said to be yet another step made by these countries as provided by delegates here, supporting the ongoing East African community integration process, an achievable dream. In the last presidential summit held in the Ugandan capital Kampala, private investors, especially those from IT sector, were requested to go on board. One of the delegates is Rwanda's Minister for Youth and ICT, Jean-Philippe Senjimana. He says the move has been long overdue, yet its benefits are very evident. ICT has proven to be one of the factors that can fast-track regional integration. No sooner that the ICT cluster was created as part of these infrastructure projects in the Northern Corridor. Then we started actually showing that there are tangible benefits that can be realized. Unlike other projects in infrastructure, uh, which take uh, time to develop, do feasibility studies, and then do a big fundraising because they take a lot of money, there are things in IT that can deliver the benefits with minimal time and investments. So the example has been the one area network, uh, removing the roaming charges has actually increased business. So telecom are making more money, which means that even government are making more money because uh, more profit uh, translates into more taxes. Uh, business are, are, are doing better because the cost has been a big barrier to doing business. Families and, and people across border are trading faster so this is a big benefit that has been delivered by the ICT cluster 
in the northern uh, uh, infrastructure project. But the formation of this technology alliance means that foreign companies that have been reaping from the region by providing IT services may now be worried due to the collective decision from four countries with the same interest. Now we have more than 15 projects lined up for execution. In the normal case, governments would have found money, put money aside and run a procurement, took time to see who wins to get those contracts and most probably, like we've seen, we would end up uh, having um, a foreign company coming and win the tender because they, 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 they are better at writing those proposals. But now this cluster, what they said is, we have that capacity, we know the technology, and actually, as opposed to just getting that money from you, we can invest in those projects and we can you know, make uh, revenues, profits, and then pay tax or even share the revenues. So that's very good news for us. I caught up with Robert Ford from the same alliance. He says coming together as a private sector is the best way to go if the entire region is to realize for development. We think that our profession should transcend our, 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 our national borders and begin looking at uh, uh, integrating technologies within the region mm -hmm. so that we can leverage on, on more profit on more expertise, on skills exchange, on human resource, research and development, monitoring and evaluation. The entire ecosystem requires now more than ever to transcend our national thinking and be begin becoming broader and looking at things in a more regional way. Because we are targeting bigger markets, we are targeting bigger, uh, bigger innovation, uh, we, are, we, are, we, are, we are looking at wide technology. But why has it been so long until they were tipped off by the heads of state? Be because of, of, of different reasons. Uh, before we were integrated, mm -hmm. we, had, we had tariff barriers. It required you to get uh, a, a work permit to take your services and skills from here and be able to operate in Uganda. Before this integration, the cost of a telephone call between Kigali and Kampala mm -hmm. was very high. If you would be in Kampala, you would be required to buy a SIM card in Kampala to be able to make calls. Now, they have harmonized all the, all, all, all the voice. Mm. So what you would pay calling Kampala here is what you would pay when you're in Kampala calling someone in Rwanda or in Kenya. Mm. Now, they are moving towards harmonization of data and SMS. And actually, very soon, they will be harmonizing mobile money. You will be able to send mobile money on your phone here and the clearing agent in Kenya will be able to receive it in, in Kenyan value and be able to clear your, your, your product. Mm -hmm. All these were barriers that, that were, were impeding the way business is done. The regional framework for quick development is applied for Rwanda, Kenya, Uganda and South Sudan through Northern Corridor Infrastructure Project Development. So far, a number of protocols have been fully implemented, such as the use of ideas travel document and single visa for tourists coming to the region. Silvanus Kremera reporting for Channel Africa from Kigali. Going back in time to today in 1970, the Aswan High Dam is completed in the United Arab Republic, Egypt, with the help of Soviet aid. The dam, which is 3,830 meters across and 111 meters high, has taken 10 years to construct.
And again today in 2008, Radovan Karadis, a former Bosnian Serb leader and one of the world's top war crimes fugitives, is arrested in a Belgrade suburb by Serbian security forces. And that was today in history in 1970 and in 2008. Hi, this is Lira, South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, celebrating 20 years of South African freedom and democracy. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Today we ask you... As the Barundi go to the polls for presidential elections today, we ask you, are elections viable, free and fair in a violent or volatile atmosphere? Give us your thoughts and your views on email at info at channelafrica.co.za. Tweet us at Rise Africa or at Channel Africa 1 or send us an SMS on 277-969-57930. Are elections free and fair in a volatile atmosphere as Barundi go to the polls for presidential elections? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Culture and joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi, informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8:45 Central African time, and our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehuku. The BRICS Development Bank has officially started with its operations in Shanghai, China. Leaders from the world's largest emerging nations have launched the new development bank, the second of two policy banks heavily backed by Beijing that are pitched as alternatives to existing institutions such as the World Bank. Also known as the BRICS Bank, it follows soon after the establishment of the China-led Asian Investment Infrastructure Bank. The new bank will fund infrastructure and development projects in BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. Lesotho Chamber of Commerce has expressed concern that the country might lose the benefits of the Africa Growth Opportunities Act 
deal owing to the prevailing political and security situation. This despite the fact that the United States government last month renewed the AGOA contract which offers incentives to Africa in a quest to strengthen relations between Africa and the U.S. The chamber says the renewal does not necessarily guarantee that Lesotho will be part of the agreement. South Africa's Department of Energy is hosting an open session on energy issues at the meeting of Sadek Energy Ministers. The session held in Johannesburg starts on Tuesday and will end on Friday. The aim of the meeting is to discuss the achievements and challenges faced by Sadek countries. South Africa's largest trade federation, COSATU, is calling for the speedy implementation of the judgment of the High Court involving President Jacob Zuma's nephew, Kulubisa Zuma, and former President Nelson Mandela's grandson, Zondo Mandela. The two directors of Aurora Empowerment Systems are expected to pay up millions of dollars in damages to the destruction of Aurora's two mines in the northwest province that cost 5,300 workers their jobs. Kosatu's secretary in the northwest province, Soli Pedro. So we're calling for the government of South Africa. They must think about those workers. We are losing lives there daily by daily. Workers, those who are from who are foreigners, are not able to go home because their permit has expired. The Department of Home Affairs does not want to help those workers. It is our call as Kosatu in the northwest province. Please, can our government think about those workers and make sure that the judgment is implemented speedily. With the public sector being earmarked as one of the main sources of finance for the post-2015 development, a report shows that it has not succeeded in some areas. The report has been launched by the African Forum and Network on Debt and Development in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Author Transinsa Simfundis explains. The book is called uh, Impact of uh, publicly supported private finance on development and poverty reduction in Africa. And we did the case of Rwanda and Zambia. Uh, basically, the books are probes or tries to get more information in terms of uh, the uh, operation of private sector and how are they going to help in terms of uh, reducing poverty and development within Africa. One U.S. dollar costs you 1241 in South Africa, 989 in Botswana, 762 in Zambia, 64 British pound, 92 euro. Gold 1103 dollars, platinum 974 dollars an ounce, brand crude 5660 cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update, I'm Tabiso Lohoku. Our sports update up next with Msubudi Makura.
Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. FIFA will hold an extraordinary Congress to elect its new president on the 26th of February 2016. FIFA leaders met on Monday to decide the date for an election to replace President Sepp Blatter and reform steps as football's world body confronts its biggest corruption crisis. Sepp Blatter was re-elected as president on the 29th of May, but four days later announced his intention to stand down amid two investigations into corruption at football's world governing body. Candidates for the position will be nominated or rather should be nominated before the 26th of October. FIFA's outgoing president, Seb Blatter, has more details. On the 27th of uh, February, or 26th, I think it's. 26th. 26th of February, uh, FIFA will have a new president. FIFA will have a new, new president. And uh, I think I will uh, come back uh, to my... Uh, uh, work or my, my, it was a little bit my hobby, I have to say. Uh, I was uh, as a journalist, but this time I would go to radio. At the same time, Blatter says FIFA will set up a new task force to propose reforms aimed at cleaning itself up after a series of scandals over the past few years. And uh, we have uh, decided to have a task force, 11 people. Um, Ten players and the coach, but the coach is a playing coach. He will be an independent personality. We will decide uh, together with the president of the confederation who will be this personality uh, to chair a reform task force. Michal Dussier has been named the new head coach of the African Giants Ivory Coast. The Ivorian Football Federation made the announcement on Monday. Dussier has signed a two-year deal with an option to extend the 56-year-old aged competition, including Frenchman Frédéric Antonete, as well as Hendrik Kasparas, who was last week named as the new Tunisian head coach to take charge of the reigning African champions, having worked as an assistant to Hendry Michel with the Elephants back in 2006. Dussier is well known in the African football circles, having led Guinea to the 2004, 2012, and as well as 2015 AFCON finals, as well as Benin at the 2010 tournament. Dussier, who led Guinea to the quarterfinals of this year's continental showpiece, replaces Frenchman Javier Renard. Back home, Orlando Pirates will play their CAF Confederation Cup group stage game against CS Fakshi this coming Sunday. The game had originally been set to take place on Saturday, and the change of date will be good news for Pirates players who have done a lot of travelling lately, having just returned to, uh, from Swaziland over the weekend. Pirates will travel to the city of S. Fakshi in Tunisia during the week as they prepare to play their third group stage game. Pirates currently sit in second position in the group stage on three points, having lost the home game against group leader Zamalek, who are sitting in first place on six points. Says Fakshin will be desperate to secure a much-needed home win as they sit bottom of the group on one point along with AC Leopards. And finally, in Mulcher Tennis News, while Lucas Atala will return home after his major triumph at the British Open this past weekend, Hotazo Munchani as well as Evans Maripa are in Geneva, Switzerland to compete in the Swiss Open. Karen Losh, general manager at Mulcher Tennis South Africa, has the details. For KG and for Evans Maripa, they have left for Geneva, Switzerland, where they will be participating in the Swiss Open, which starts tomorrow. 
um, KG after the Swiss Open will then come home for a well-deserved break and also prepare for the U.S. Open should she get the wild card there. Um, and Evans Maripa will go on to one more, one more tournament after that in, um, uh, in Italy. The Zaya Sports News and the South. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorra. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, voting is underway in Burundi's presidential election and African Union to send human rights observers to Burundi. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Sfiso Mashiko and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send us an SMS on 277-969-57930. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Somi with a song titled Akobi. It's been overcast and somewhat gray, but blue's not the color that'll wear today. I want some sparkle and I want something more.